You're listening to the Felony Inc. podcast on the Startup Radio Network. In America, we live in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth. And the current cost of mass incarceration via the prison industrial complex is incalculable. So anything that can be done to help curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. That's what we attempt to do, one show at a time and one guest at a time. Each week, we interview felons and non-felons attempting to make the world a better place for those currently incarcerated, families, and communities affected by the big business of prison. Felony Inc. Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Hey, welcome to Felony Inc. Podcast. I'm your host, DJ Dick Hennessy. As always, joined by my number one co-host, Meg Thibodeau. Meg, how are you doing today? I'm all right, Dick. Things are going pretty good. I mean, considering I think that I have many, many blessings to count, this podcast and our guests today are among them. I completely agree. And speaking of blessings to count, today's kind of a big deal for me. This is actually my 50th episode hosting Felony Inc. Podcast, so um, I don't know where the time goes. That's uh, kind of a milestone for me because I just know when I first got started doing the show, I just kind of was thrust into it, wasn't really sure. It took me a little bit to kind of find my bearings. And then we had to pivot, of course, with COVID. And uh, now here I am, 50 shows in, and I couldn't be happier. So We couldn't be happier either, Dick. You're a real treasure. Uh, Thank you very much, Meg. I appreciate that. And speaking of real treasures, I'm really excited about today's guest. Uh, Today we have none other than Richard Bronson, founder of 70millionjobs.com. It's the number 70millionjobs.com. Richard, how are you doing today? I am terrific, and I am thankful that you asked me to be here today. We're so glad you could make it. Absolutely. Um, Richard, typically, you being a first-time guest of the show, how we kind of run things is kind of get to know you a little bit, Um, maybe perhaps your upbringing, what kind of led you on the path that you're on today. So if you could please uh, oblige us, that'd be great. Sure, Um, and thank you for asking. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Los Angeles, where... Uh, I and my company are based, um, but originally I'm from New York, and uh, the story of my company's 70 million jobs and commissary club uh, date back quite some time. Uh, I used to work on Wall Street. Um, Wall Street used to be the place that if, you know, you lived in New York or maybe wherever you lived, you know, it was known as a place that you can make a lot of money and lead a glamorous, exciting life. And that was certainly something that I was interested in um, back in the mid 80s. Uh, I had the opportunity to work at a couple of very large investment banks where I did well. And then I actually became a partner at the infamous Wolf of Wall Street firm, as depicted in the Martin Scorsese movie. Uh, and I lived through all of that insanity. Um, I left there to move to Florida, where uh, I had the opportunity, along with a business partner, to launch our own financial services firm. And starting literally from zero, we built the firm into a $100 million business. We had over 500 employees. And needless to say, I made a lot of money doing that. But unfortunately, I made some of that money doing things that were illegal. Um, And uh, while I would love to say that I have all kinds of excuses for my behavior, um, everybody was doing it, or I didn't realize, or they got it wrong, or whatever, Um, The truth is, I knew full well what I was doing. Uh, I was greedy, and I was stupid, and I was impatient. And I made choices that almost 30 years later, I still daily wake up regretting. Um, I uh, was lucky in that um, we decided to pay everybody back prior to our being indicted. And that certainly helped us when it came to, it certainly helped me when it came time for the judge to sentence me. Uh, You know, I, and I believe that I was certainly 
my punishment was certainly warranted. Uh, in a way, in a weird way, I almost looked forward to the punishment because I was so overwhelmed with a sense of shame and guilt and embarrassment that I had hoped that a punishment might uh, allow me to give, to provide me with some reprieve from that shame. And it didn't really, um, again, I still live with it and I'm not asking anybody's sympathy. I brought it on myself, so I deserve whatever, but I was sent to prison for a few years. And, um, like most people who go through the criminal justice system along the way, I lost everything. Um, I lost my freedom, certainly, most importantly, but I lost my entire net worth. And I also lost a lot of people who I thought were going to be lifelong friends. And when I came out of prison, then I had literally less than zero. Um, I was homeless and destitute, which if you had any idea what my prior life was, the contrast was fairly striking. I led a life that included private jets and celebrities and gambling and drugs and excitement. It was a lot of fun, I have to admit. But, you know, uh, going away to prison and scrubbing toilets um, sort of has a humbling uh, effect on any big shot. And it certainly had that effect on me. And I, you know, I used the time in addition to working out every day and playing guitar and reading a lot. Those are things, three things that I love anyway. You know, I had the opportunity to really reflect on my life and my motivations and decisions that I made. And I, you know, really came to understand how my ego, um, you know, which is, I think, typically a source of great peril for everybody, how it pushed me into doing things that I knew were wrong. So I came out of prison, a change person, um, and I wasted a couple of years trying to figure out what to do with my life, like most people. It was very, very daunting for me. You know, should I be trying to hit home runs again? Am I a high achiever that just needs, you know, this is a new opportunity or was my success inexorably tied purely to my breaking the law? You know, where do I fit in? What do I do? Who am I? And that was a difficult period of, I mean, a very dark period of exploration and discovery for me. I was very, very lucky that I discovered a nonprofit organization that would have me. And I worked there for a period of time and it was very rewarding and it was good for my soul. Um, but ultimately, at a certain point, I couldn't help but acknowledge that despite our best efforts at this nonprofit, which was full of well-meaning people, and indeed at so many that exist around this country, hundreds and hundreds exist, and I know them all, that in, unfortunately in the aggregate, we were having very, very little impact on the issues that mattered to me. In general, reentry, specifically issues regarding recidivism. The rate of recidivism, the likelihood that someone goes back to prison is like 75%. That someone who's released from jail or prison is going to return. And recidivism destroys lives and destroys families and decimates communities and costs society hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And that emerged as what I saw as my calling in life, albeit discovered late in life, but nonetheless, this is the work I wanted to do. So I launched a company for the first time that would take a for-profit approach, very different than the way things had been done for decades before regarding re-entry. And we would employ technology and we would be aggressive business people in pursuing these challenges because I felt like we can't do any worse than the way it's been done. And it took us a while, but in fact, we did find, 
we cracked the code sort of, and we had stunning success in helping people get jobs. And we actually started making money, which was all the more incredible to me and my investors and my team. Uh, of course, the coronavirus had other plans for us. Yeah, absolutely. And when you bring that up, 75% recidivism, you actually posted that 80% chance that someone released will be rearrested within five years. And uh, in all those cases, well, 90% of them will not have jobs at the time of the rearrest. So Correct. it kind of shows how critically important it is and how correlated being unemployed and just taking the chances just to be able to live and support yourself, let alone if you have a family is. And so essentially jobs and education are those same two things that mean make all the world of difference. Um, when you started 70 million jobs, uh, I read that your main goal or one of your main goals at the time was to be seeking double bottom line returns. What does that mean exactly? Double bottom line returns is not, uh, is not a phrase that I or we invented, um, but rather uh, a common, commonly used phrase within the world of, you know, impact investing and impact ventures. Um, I made no bones about it at any time that A, I wanted to build a big successful business. Um, I used to be, you know, I used to be wealthy. I used to never worry about paying the rent. Uh, and I very much worry about paying the rent now. And so I'd like to, on a certain level, return to some of those more comfortable days, of course, doing it honestly and legally and holding on to the money. But at the same time, I want to have massive and we want to have massive social good, do massive social good. I want to change the world. I want to help my brothers and sisters who are coming out of prison have more opportunities. And I want to help enable them to take care of their families to hopefully short circuit these insidious cycles of recidivism that just keep rolling along, you know, that just, you know, kids are just destined to follow in the footpaths of their, of their fathers and seeing only one way to success, you know, a, a way that's illegal and sort of accepting the fact that they're going to go to prison because that's where their friends are and their family is, and that's where they belong. I don't believe that they belong there. I've had the great good fortune to meet some really incredible people along the line, um, and certainly many of whom I would call very highly entrepreneurial. You know, if they were doing a drug business, they were great business people doing it. You know, and if they were born into a different situation, they could have been the next Mark Zuckerberg. You know, they could have that sort of success, except, you know, fate dealt them a different hand. So, you know, I am aware of um, the potential and the potential is there in abundance as much as it is with any other population of people. Um, it's, it's interesting you know, I, I discovered in going to prison, certainly, and spending, you know, you have nothing but time on your hands, obviously. So you get to know people really well. And, you know, I discovered that people in prison, for the most part, you know, for the overwhelming part of them, they were really no different at all than anybody else. You know, they were maybe a little more aggressive and risk takers, but I, I, I mean, I know so many business people who've never spent a day in jail or prison who cheat on their income tax. Almost everybody does, I think. And I don't know too many people who haven't gotten behind the wheel of their Range Rover after having one too many glasses of wine or an extra beer. Um, and yet I was in prison with people who drunkenly ran, ran someone over you know, and the situation, you know, there, but for the grace of God, you know, who among us is so perfect? Who among us hasn't made mistakes, particularly when they were kids, they were stupid kids, stupid kids make stupid mistakes. It's sort of a rite of passage. The difference is, you know, I grew up in a world where my father had the means to hire a good attorney for me. 
Um, many of the people I was in prison with, young men of color particularly, didn't have that safety net. And, you know, as a result, their fate was sort of sealed on day one. So, you know, I'm, I don't know where I'm going here other than to say, you know, morality, we, we, we tend to look for black and white answers and understandings. And when it comes to morality, it's a far more nuanced thing. But, you know, I believe that essentially we're all people trying to do the best we can, trying to be happy using the tools that we think are available to us. But unless you're a saint, you know, you've had to ask for forgiveness and a second chance. And I'm just eager to give as many people second chances as we can. There's something about the um, population of prison where folks have hit a kind of bottom where I, in my experience working with that population, as well as this podcast, there's a kind of grit and tenacity that in fact seems to be more present in that population when it comes to resilience, resourcefulness, willingness to work extremely hard. Um, this is a population that's incredibly hungry to have what we call second chances, but it are often any chance at all of getting, um, getting ahead and being able to live a life that has some security in it. Um, will you tell us more about uh, how the coronavirus has impacted 70 million jobs and how you guys are pivoting? Yes, thank you. And, and I 100% agree with your point, by the way. Um, in working closely at scale nationally with lots and lots and lots of folks, these people, it turns out, actually make amazingly good employees when given the chance. It, it may be counterintuitive, um, but the reality of it is, is because they have so few options available to them, because they, they personally have had 10 job interviews that ended with the door being slammed in their face, so that when they do get that job, almost regardless of what it is, they recognize how special and lucky they are. And they, they recognize that probably somebody went out on a limb to hire them. And they typically want to repay that person or company with their loyalty. Loyalty is an old fashioned concept on the job. It used to be people get hired and they retire at that company and they give you a gold watch. Now young people particularly jump around from place to place to place feeling no sense of loyalty at all and almost resentful that they have to show up from work if they're not making a lot of money. My people come in with a smile and they're really appreciative and that tends to rub off on their coworkers. So it has this incredible, po incredibly positive ripple effect. But we, in answer to your question, um, and if you haven't noticed, I can talk about this stuff for the next 83, I don't know how long your podcast runs. Does it run 83 hours? Because I could fill it. I, I, I feel very passionate about this. And we've learned a lot. And I love to talk. Um, but um, we were doing very, very well. And we were doing well from a financial point of view. And, you know, we are funded by venture capital firms. So, they certainly have a vested interest in our success. And we were doing well in that we were getting a lot of people jobs. We sort of figured things out finally. That's called product market fit in the tech world. And we had discovered it. The coronavirus hit and almost overnight, companies got rid of all our people. You know, our people were working in factories and warehouses. We had people at the Smithfield meatpacking plant which emerged as one of those super spreader locations. So they let them all go. And these are jobs you can't work at home doing. So unfortunately, you know, it was had a devastating impact on the population I serve. Um, for a brief moment, I considered, and, and we went from, you know, flying high to zero almost overnight. And um, it was discouraging, of course, you know, and I didn't expect that the job market was going to come back anytime soon, which it hasn't. So either we were going to pack it in or we were going to go to plan B. And we chose plan B. 
Um, it would always been my dream to create a social network for this population that we know well. First of all, we have experience in working with them at a large national scale. We have a community of over a million people that we've already amassed who would be keenly interested in our next move. Um, and I was inspired, certainly, by Black Lives Matter and all the attention placed on in, you know, uh, civil rights injustices globally. Um, as you folks, you know, in, in uh, where you're located, certainly is sort of like ground zero. Um, what, you know, and I marched along with a lot of other people and was inspired how people came together speaking in one voice and were actually getting things done. And, you know, it reminded me of the women's movement where women were, you know, at one point relegated to stay at home, be a housewife. You don't belong on the job, you know, you know, keep to yourself, that whole thing. And then the women's movement empowered women and gave them a voice when they came together and gave birth to sisterhood of women looking after each other, how powerful that was and is. Still a long way to go, but amazing things have happened. And that was true of the civil rights movement. And that was true of the LGBTQ movement, where they, at a certain point, there was an inflection point, they came together to speak with one voice. And I felt like, you know something, that time has come for this population of 70 million. And it's not just the 70 million, it's also their families, another 100 million, certainly, who are equally, if not more, impacted by the criminal justice system. And I felt like if they could come together, if they could meet each other, they could be a source of not just friendship, but role models and inspiration and connections where none of these exist. Because this population, given its size, could elect any president it wanted if it were ever put sort of metaphorically into one room and galvanized to do it. And this is a population, maybe individually, they don't have that much money or they're out of work, but in the aggregate, they have huge economic potential. They buy a lot of sneakers and hamburgers and mobile phones and listen to a lot of music and on and on. And yet nobody markets anything to them, truly. And to me, that's both weird and it's an opportunity. And it's not right in any event. And I thought that given our position and our reputation and our relationships and our social media presence and all the goodwill that we had incurred through our work, that we could really sort of position ourselves at the epicenter of so much that's going on in this space and, and help bring together this population as it has not been be before. People with records live in the shadows out of fear, out of shame, and they shoulder this lifetime burden um, of being a pariah, of being a second-class citizen. And I don't think it's right, and I don't think anybody thinks it's right. You commit a crime, you do your time, but it, should, you, should you be subject to a lifetime sentence? I don't think too many people think that's fair, and I certainly don't. And so we're working very, very hard to say enough is enough. And at the same time, on our site, Commissary Club, which is at commissary.club, we have all the resources that are important for someone to actually have a chance at le leading a productive, successful, happy life and reentry. So in addition to employment, we're working on housing and education and legal help and medical help and mentorships even a dating site, which believe it or not, doesn't exist. These are all opportunities, business opportunities that I see that we can really kind of put our arms around this population and bring great value and also build a very successful business doing it. And to me, that's a new paradigm, you know, of a company that does well by doing good, you know, and they're not mutually exclusive at all. I think they work together in very odd sort of ways that 
you know, good things come of that in unexpected fashions. It's, it's like kismet in a way. But ultimately, what motivates me, I'm a Buddhist, and I believe in karma. And I believe that I got some shit I got to deal with. And as I'm getting older in life, I am increasingly thinking about what happens next to me. And I'd like to go to heaven, all things being equal. If not in this lifetime, then one, you know, in the next one. And I have, a, I got to do a lot to make up for and atone for stuff I did. So that's what informs everything that I do. So we have to stop for a quick ad to pay some bills. And then I've got some more questions about Commissary Club. Me too. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. All right, welcome back to Felony Podcast. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Richard Bronson, founder of 70millionjobs.com. And also the founder of Commissary Club, which is commissary.club. We were just kind of touching on that a little bit. Now, I actually, uh, before we did the show, I joined Commissary Club to kind of check it out and be a part of it. I saw that the Justice Arts Coalition, also five, Muallim Ak and Cosmarty from Combody were a part of it. And these are all people that we've had on the show. Um, yeah. So I'm looking forward to being a, being a part of it as well. Uh, cool. Can you talk a little bit more about how you came up with... Uh, just the idea to bring everyone together and network and, and what you're doing right now to kind of actively get the, get the word out about commissary club. Um, good questions. Well, you know, typically if you're doing a social site, if you're doing almost any kind of site, you know, ultimately um, you got to get people to the site. You need traffic. Um, my father used to say to me, it doesn't matter if you're selling gold for a penny an ounce, if you don't have somebody coming into your store, you know, nobody's going to benefit and you're not going to sell any gold. Um, in our case, we have all these resources, but, you know, in a, in a forest, does anyone hear the tree that falls? That was about six or seven mixed metaphors I threw in in <laughs> one sentence. So I hope you can really, I went from gold to forests uh, uh, seamlessly. Um, but in any event, um, what we have going for us, um, which you know we consider to be an unfair advantage really, is from our legacy company, 70 Million Jobs, we already have this huge community that we've been working with, you know, towards um, employment. Now, I'm going to give you a little trade secret here. Um, where do those people come from? Because you can't just, you know, go into a phone book and pull out lists of people who have records. You can't even buy that data, you know, from a marketing company that may have that. It just doesn't exist. There's, you know, privacy issues that prevent that. And, and a variety of other, uh, other challenges. Um, what we did was we established partnerships with um, about 450 community groups and faith-based organizations uh, and nonprofits um, who operate in and out of prison. And we went to them and we said, please send us all of your clients that may be looking for jobs. And it doesn't have to be a current client. It could be someone from 10 years ago. Because the thing is that if you've got a record, A, half of them don't have jobs currently. Probably 90% of the ones that remain are underemployed. 
and certainly would be interested in hearing about opportunities that may exist. So from, from having zero job seekers in our, you know, in our two-sided marketplace, all of a sudden we had loads of them and they exceed a million at this point. And we've never charged them a penny for our services to try to help them with jobs. I mean, we didn't get them all jobs. We've tried, but some people we couldn't get jobs for, certainly. But it wasn't for lack of trying, and we never charged them anything. So we have a lot of goodwill from them. They appreciate it. And that's another thing about this population. They are incredibly appreciative. They don't take anything for granted. The world has not been really kind to them from the day they were born, so that when anybody comes along and as a human being is trying to do something to help, they recognize that's special and they are incredibly appreciative. You know, um, honestly, it, in so many ways, it's an honor to serve them. As, as Meg, you were talking about before, their attitude is you would expect to be one of resent. I met people who were in prison. I met people who were, who were improperly incarcerated for 30 years for a crime they didn't commit. And they come out and they come out. I mean, I can't imagine how angry I would be. They come out with a wisdom and a peace about them. They've come to terms with this and a smile. They're just extraordinary people. So in any event, um, we have already built in the distribution system, the supply for users. And we launched our site over the last couple of weeks in beta, which means it's being done in a very deliberate, slow fashion so that we can really pay attention and follow the underlying analytics of how are they behaving on the site? What do they like? What does it turn out that they don't like? You know, being, uh, you know, following the market and what it's telling you is really uh, a, an important thing when you're introducing a tech product, particularly. So it doesn't matter what I think, it's what they think that, that really matters. So we're following that carefully. Tomorrow, we're starting to open the doors a lot more broadly and inviting a lot more people in. So we're expecting, you know, huge numbers of people you know, as, as we have had in the past, you know, these people still need jobs and they still need housing. But in addition to that, we want to bring them together that they can meet each other, so, so to speak. So, um, you know, we're expecting, you know, uh, to have a lot, a lot of users and a lot of engagement. It's up to us to keep them there. You know, you got to be careful that you're not churning too many people that they show up once and never come back because they don't see any value. They don't get anything out of it. So that's the trick right now is to make sure that, you know, we're providing value to them that they can recognize. Yeah. And you're definitely doing that from what I can tell. Um, we recently on the show had uh, Sherry Garcia, who's the founder of Cornbread Hustle, which is virtually. I know her. Yeah. So you, you're very familiar with the. Uh, Pretty much a very similar business model to what you're doing. Um, well, not it's similar to what we were doing. Yeah, she, um, you know, she operates. A, a, you know, she she she's great. You know, and I do know her, and we've worked together. You know, she's uh, is targeting things on a local level. Um, you know, which is a, a sort of a different approach to the one we took. There's a lot of people out there who are doing great things and who have big hearts and who care, you know, and you mentioned Cos Marte, for example, I know Cos very, very well. I have a podcast that he was on. And, and as a matter of fact, maybe I can get you guys on our podcast. I'd love that. If that's not too uh, incest incestuous. Um, but um, Cos went through a program at a nonprofit called Defy Ventures, where I used to work. That was the nonprofit. I did as well. I used to, I, I used to volunteer. In fact, oh. I was uh, mentoring during Casa's class. Where you were mentoring in where whereabouts were you, you, you nationally? No, I went to New York and mentored in the Defy Ventures classroom. And then I was one of the uh, I was one of the judges for the final pitch competition when Cos won. Do, were do you have there? We, I would have been there. Yeah, we, maybe we met Richard. <laughs> I know. Amazing. I was there. I flew into New York to judge that final pitch competition for Defy Ventures. And when Cos won, do you know, he's a that, treasure. Uh, 
He's great. And, and that's the, an example of an entrepreneur that this, this guy is going to be successful no matter whatever happened to him. That's the know? one I always think of when you were talking a little bit ago about like serious entrepreneurs. I mean, Koss had an incredible illegal business and he has transformed that hustle into just an amazing, took this simple idea and has taken it so far. He's a He's a real inspiration. He is. We used to trot him out all over the country as as really a success story, and um, we also. I don't know if you were if you remember. Um, there was a very very tall fellow who went through Defy at the same time. His name was Seth, who was like seven feet tall. He mm-hmm. used he used to be in the NBA. He's on my team. Oh, fantastic. So we've all stayed, you know, connected. And now you sort of add to the circle that we have here. It's (laughs) great. But, um, yeah, um, he was great. You know, these people are amazing, you know. And I I always felt, like, really proud. They were the secret to our success at 70 Million Jobs. We'd get a few of these folks a job, and the company inevitably would come back and say, we need more just like them. You know, it was almost like, you, you know, you go into a restaurant with a group of people, you know, it's a Chinese restaurant, you order some appetizers for the table, and then you realize you haven't ordered enough, and you go, bring us more of the egg rolls. They were really good. That's how these companies would ask for more people, bring us more of those, you know, as if they were like, could we could just cook them up for them, you know, give them duplicates. But, so it was always very funny to hear that, but inevitably that's what would happen. You know, these folks are the best egg rolls imaginable. So, Richard, you were uh, obviously a partner at Stratton Oakland. Um, I'm assuming you kind of took some of that, the, the aspects of that business into your business, which kind of led you down uh, the situation that you got yourself into. But at the time, you were actually a philanthropist in Miami. Uh, you were the chairman of the board of the city ballet and you were the trustee of the Museum of Contemporary Art. Now, um, I'm not sure how many people know this, but I'm actually Jewish, and you had mentioned uh, a Yiddish term, which essentially says, uh, man plans and God laughs. Um, at the time when you were doing all these things, did you think, did you have plans, like big plans for the future? Or did you think karmatically that inevitably this was going to catch up with you? I, this question is going to end up with me shedding a, a few tears, inevitably. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I always felt, you know, I was lucky. I had two parents who loved me very much and made me believe that I could do anything I wanted to do and, you know, had high hopes for me. Um, and I too am Jewish and coming from a Jewish family as the first son, you know, all of the hopes and dreams of a family are placed in that person. And I felt that, and I, I, you know, I felt inspired by the the faith they had in me and the love that they gave me, you know, and that's to a great extent why I think I feel such guilt about the stupid, terrible things that I may have done. You know, they weren't, I lost them years and years ago, um, and I thank God they didn't have to go through what I went through to see their son go to prison. Um, I, I, I did give away a lot of money to charities and part of it is because they meant a lot to me. And part of it, the larger part is that I wanted to to act in a way that was more consistent in my image of who I should be or would want to be or they would want me to be my parents than I actually was living. You know, there's something called cognitive dissonance that we live through. For example, people who smoke cigarettes, they do it. And at the same time, they know it's killing them and they certainly don't want to die, but they're still smoking cigarettes. And that creates a dissonance that creates, you know, a jolt to the system because you can't, have both of these things happening at the same time. You can't care about your life while you're at the same time daily trying to kill yourself. 
And the same thing was true with what I was doing. I had this image of myself as being a good, fine person who was put on this earth to do great things. And yet, on a daily basis, I was doing things that were not good, that were bad, that I knew were bad, that I had no excuse for doing other than just the worst reasons. And how do you reconcile them simultaneously? What most of us did, and I think a lot of people do, is you self-medicate. Some people drink a lot to sort of dull that dissonance. In my case, and among my peers, we used to take drugs. Specifically, we took a lot of quaaludes. Quaaludes were a drug that blots out a lot of things and sort of dulls all your perceptions and allows you to look past it all. And then at the end of the night, you get a great night's sleep, which is always a challenge when you're doing things you know are wrong. So that's how I dealt with it, which is not a strategy that's sustainable at all. Yeah, it makes sense. And I mean, we definitely saw the examples of that in the movie too that came out. Um, yeah. One of the things. What we did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who can forget the quaalude scenes of Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah, it's definitely the most memorable of all scenes. <laughs> Um, one of the things I saw you talk about is that new studies suggest that um, previously incarcerated people can be better employees than those yep. without any kind of criminal record. Uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Um, we happen to be, my company happens to be partnered with SHRM, which is the Society for Human Resource Management. Um, SHRM is the International Trade Association for Human Resource Professionals. Pretty much every human resource person that works at certainly all the large companies belong to this organization. And, you know, they do a lot of things, but, you know, they also do studies um, regarding work and workers. And they created the study, believe it or not, in conjunction with the Koch Foundation. The Koch Foundation is... So, you know, Charles Koch, the billionaires, they are among the most conservative people, you know, in the world. And you would think that when it comes to criminal justice issues and criminal justice reform, they would not be very sympathetic to people going through it. You know, you'd think they'd be the toughest. But in fact, they are very much players in criminal justice reform, if for no other reason than they recognize the billions of dollars that are being spent to get no value at all, that the system is so broken. So I salute them in, in a weird way. There's not much that I really connect with them or agree with any of their positions other than this one. So in any event, I wanted to give them that credit. They uh, and Sherm came out with a study and they polled thousands and thousands of HR professionals. And they discovered that 80% or so of the HR professionals that they polled who've had experience in hiring people with records, these, these managers and hirers believe that the quality of hire when hiring someone with a record is as good as, if not better, than hiring somebody without a record. It's better than someone without a record. And again, that may be completely counterintuitive. I think most people would expect, I can't hire these people. They're troublemakers. They're going to do something terrible. They're going to come in high and they're going to shoot guns and bring their friends and destroy my workplace and all kinds of other awful things. It turns out that that's not what happens. It almost never happens that way, as a matter of fact. There exists, not to overwhelm you with statistics, but there exists currently a federal bonding program that indemnifies employers that hire people with felony arrests, whereby if you hire them and they commit a crime, like they steal something or they, you know, otherwise, you know, create a problem that you can file a claim and, you know, be compensated for the losses that you incurred. This is a program that's been around for about three decades, 30 years. And over the course of these three decades, 56 claims have been hired altogether. 
56, that's less than two a year. The point being that people, when they have, when they have jobs, this population, they almost never get in trouble again. Contrary-wise, if they don't get a job, they almost always get in trouble again. So employment truly is the silver bullet. That's where the answer lies. And it would seem so obvious in as much as it costs a city maybe a hundred grand to reincarcerate somebody who's rearrested. A hundred thousand versus training them to get a job. And it's not just the money. It's when someone commits a new crime, you know, cops get shot, new victims are created, you know, the loss to society in dollars and in human, you know, uh, matters are, are enormous. And yet we do almost nothing to really look at the problem in any sort of creative way. And it's understandable, you know, people think that the criminal justice system is this monolithic federal thing, you know, like the department of defense, you know, and the, and the feds are overseeing everything. But in reality, less than 10% of criminal justice is handled on the federal level. 90% is state and county and local level. And these state and county and local levels, you know, these are civil servants. These are people who are not, you know, the greatest at technology. And they are not nearly as aggressive as they could be. It's like the Department of Motor Vehicles. Would you hand over 350 grand to the Department of Motor Vehicles and say, fix the criminal justice system and expect results? The results that exist are awful because we keep doing the same thing over and over. So I think there have to be radically different things and they couldn't possibly be worse than the way they are now. You know, so I don't know. There doesn't seem to be a heck of a lot of risk for a state or a city or a county to, you know, approach things differently. It is said that the money that they waste on criminal justice, and it is wasted because the rate of, you know, again, the rate of recidivism and unemployment and drug case, you know, everything is just a total mess. That money could be used to solve so many other problems. You know, they could be solving homelessness. They could be solving education, you know, if this money were available and not being wasted. So we're trying to come up with some of these solutions we think we have, and that's really central to what we offer. Yeah, there's just a ton of disinformation out there about how much money is uh, being made or being saved by incarcerating people when it's the exact opposite. I remember uh, I, I was watching the new documentary on Ronald Reagan where he talked about uh, every dollar of welfare actually cost uh, the government three dollars but in reality it costs like 17 cents or whatever per dollar of welfare yeah um, and, there's and, a real narrative that we benefit from keeping the quote-unquote bad people incarcerated and that somehow society is safer on account of it and in fact our criminal justice system does not keep society safe at all. It, it tears society down, tears families apart, dehumanizes a, a massive population. It's racist, it's classist, and it's actually sits central to a lot of the ways that we have systemic issues. Uh, absolutely 100% true. We have 4% of the world's population and 25% of its incarcerated population. We are the only country. And by that, when I say the only one, I'm including some nasty countries like, you know, Afghanistan and North Korea and Russia and China. We put juveniles into solitary confinement. Every other country on the earth thinks that's so inhuman. That's the bridge too far. We do it. We're number one. We're number one. Much to be <laughs> proud of. And, and, and look how well the system is working. It doesn't work. It doesn't help, you know. And it really comes down to, if, if, if we can go off on this if you don't mind, but I found it very interesting, you know, you know, it used to be, and I used to, I was brought up to believe, oh, those people in jail, they're animals, they're monsters, lock them up, throw away the key. And that was okay until the drug wars started. 
And our brothers and uncles and friends started getting arrested. And now all of a sudden, they're the ones in prison. And three strikes, you're out. And now they're in prison. And that's when our prison population exploded. And now all of a sudden, these monsters are our friends and brothers and sisters. It used to be it's us versus them. But what happens when them is us? How do you reconcile that? That's more cognitive dissonance, you know? And people started looking at this thing differently. Like the way they looked at, you know, folks who are gay. Oh, them, they're, they're whatever. And then it turns out that your own kid is, or your own kid is smoking pot, you know? I remember, <laughs> I remember my father. I was in camp. I was 12 years old, and they caught me smoking pot in summer camp. And any event, things change dramatically. Sorry, I do go on. Oh, man, no problem at all. And I'd love to hear the rest of that pot smoking story. <laughs> <laughs> this was early pot smoking days. And my father, my father, a Marine from World War II, freaked out is, is the best way to put it. Man, yeah, I can't get enough of stories like that, especially nowadays. Um, Richard, I wish we had another couple hours to talk to you right 80, now man. what was it 86 hours we yeah, need yeah we need 80, 85 more hours <laughs> uh, I'm, come on i'll keep going let's go 85 <laughs> more hours well we will have to have you back if you would like to join us we would love to invite you for another show and i've had a ball being here and i thank you so much for the opportunity to to chat with you guys and 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 to have your audience hear about the stuff we're doing please visit commissary.club and if you have any advice and want to tell me how wrong we're doing things i look forward to hearing from you with that uh, i can be reached at richard at commissary.club just be you know gentle i'm doing the best we can do but, um, you know, we look forward to continuing this conversation. And it's one of my great pleasures in the work we do to come in contact with guys like you, you know, who have such big hearts and who get it. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for everything. And you can definitely see me. I'll be active on Commissary Club, too, from now on. All right, on. don't stalk me now. <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try not to. I'll try not to. <laughs> Uh, and on that note, uh, that's it for 50 episodes for me. I'm looking forward to the next 50, trying to get to 100 real soon. Um, again, as we're approaching the holiday season and stuff like that, about now it's getting kind of cold on the yard and uh, it's getting real dark early. So uh, please, if you're listening and you have friends or family that are currently incarcerated, do not forget to write them. Uh, do not forget to contact them. And uh, definitely... They will not mind if you put a little bit extra money on their books. Uh, I know that from personal experience. That means the world to everyone. So, again, remember to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on StartupRadioNetwork.com. Until next week, we'll see you. Peace. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.